We are in Genesis chapter 25. If you open your Bible or take your technology to your Bible to Genesis chapter 25, the death of Abraham. When you come to a closed passage like this, it's a little bit of a, a mixed set of emotions. The patriarch, Abraham, is going to die. His death is summed up in a few short verses. But nonetheless, this is a page of the scripture. It's a page of the word of God. And at the highest level, what we're hearing in this storyline is that God kept his promises. And to digress for just a second, uh, that is the story of scripture, that we have a God who keeps his promise. Uh, Some of you perhaps grew up in a home where you had little books that were the promises of God or the Sunday school class, you got a little promises of God. Maybe your parents had a big promises of God on their uh, coffee table. It's kind of fallen out of use, but the term is that God has said things that we can trust. God has said things that we can stake our life on. God has made true his promise. And the promises of scripture are always fulfilled, not always in the way or the time we would think, but they're always fulfilled. And we'll talk again and again throughout Bible teaching about the importance of Genesis 12, And how seminal it is when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and he makes some promises to him. And when he is buried, we're going to see those promises were fulfilled and the transition is in place for what's going to happen. Now, in a practical shoe leather right at the beginning, when you trusted Christ based on God's word and God's spirit, that promise is true. When he says you're forgiven, that promise is true. When he says he'll be with you, that promise is true. When he says that he loves you no matter what your circumstance or human experiences may show, that is true. Now, our experience tends to work against us often. But that doesn't mitigate or say that God's, negate that God's promises are still true. And so at the highest level, this book you hold is the very word of God. And we're living in a time when to say that, I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. I'm a marginalized, stupid, Bible-beating preacher. And happily to put my name beside lowercase, way below Paul to say, I'll be a fool for Christ. I'll be an idiot. I'm going to trust God's word over man. And that's the decision all of us have to make. On an ongoing basis, do we trust him at his word? And that, in sum, is the life of Abraham. Easton writes, The history of Abraham made a wide and deep impression on the ancient world, and references to it are interwoven in the religious traditions of almost every Eastern nation. He is called the friend of God by James, faithful Abraham in Galatians, and the father of us all in Romans. Now, we have kind of a formulaic obituary narrative that the Old Testament uses, especially in the Pentateuch, about how someone lived their, their years, they were dead, they were buried. It's, it's the way we would do an obituary today, somewhat analogous to that. Um, and so we're going to see part of that. And if we were to skim over, oh, okay, that's a summary, it's important. If you're a careful Bible reader, if you're a BSF or a precept student, you will notice Genesis 25 is not chronological. It's a summary chapter. And some people get hung up reading. They go, wait a minute, something's out of sequence here. Uh, Because what's happening is we've gone from the story about Abraham to a brief story about Isaac, and then we're going to get to a story about Jacob. 
And so Genesis 25 serves as a transition of what's going on beforehand and how that transition of the promise is now fulfilled and passed on to Isaac. And now Isaac's got a bride, finally, Rebecca. The promise isn't void. Now Isaac will have children. And so the, the transition of the blessing being fulfilled in Abraham and then transitioning that promise off to the next generation is what this chapter, this brief chapter, uh, captures. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses. Look at Genesis 25, verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. We do not know uh, when he took her as his wife. Uh, she's also referred to as a concubine. We do know that she bore Abraham six sons. It seems in this passage he takes her as a wife after the death of Sarah. The two things that stand out right away in this first verse is that Abraham's Abraham has nations. And this really is a very brief announcement of the nations that come from Abraham's loins. Of these six sons, all of them will become Arabian tribal leaders. And those tribes will become massive population groups. And they will interfight with Israel throughout Israel's history. But in this covenant promise, go back in your mind to chapter 17. 15, 17, 19, these times when God reiterated the covenant of 24. In 17, 4, he says, my covenant is with you, God says to Abraham, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So when he's, when he's being buried, this obituary, this death report is telling us he had six sons beyond the son, the true promised son, Isaac. Six sons are born, and from those tribal groups become large population groups. God fulfilled his promise. The second thing I want you to observe is that the blessing to the world comes to the promised son of Isaac. And that's where the text will differentiate a little bit because those sons are treated differently than the way Isaac is treated. So first, Abraham's nations. Then we have um, Isaac's inheritance, verses 5 and 6. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Now, there's no reason to suggest that Abraham didn't love those other boys. We know from chapter 17, 8, that when Ishmael uh, had been born and Sarah and Abraham were yet to have a child, that uh, Abraham pleads with God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no. You and Sarah will have a son. That's the son of promise. Uh, He loved Ishmael. He didn't want to send Ishmael away. We looked at at that a few weeks back. But he does because he obeys God. And so there's no reason to think that he didn't love these six sons that he fathered with Keturah and with Ishmael from Hagar. In fact, the text says he gave them gifts in in the nomenclature. We're not precisely sure what that means, but remember, Abraham's rich. He's a very powerful man in the ancient Near East. He's got a lot of land, a lot of servants, a lot of possessions. And this isn't like, here's a couple of goats, see you later. Um, I'm pretty sure he set them up when he sent them away. He cared for them enough to become a tribal group. But the important part of the passage is the differentiation. He gave all he had to Isaac. Because the firstborn is not Ishmael. The firstborn is Isaac. He's the promised son. He's the only one that came from Sarah. The other ones came from other women. So he gives gifts to the sons he loves. They become nations, fulfilling the covenant promise. But the promised son gets the entire inheritance. 
Abraham's nations, Isaac's inheritance, third, Abraham's death and burial, or we call the obituary, verse 7. Now these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and was gathered to his people. Then his son Isaac and Ishmael, his sons Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahor Roy. Now this is a fulfillment of chapter 15, 15 as well as other passages where he tells him that he will be buried at a good old age. The word in 1550, good old age, is the same here, ripe old age. Ripe has kind of a funny connotation to us. Well, it's kind of ripe. It's a little too ripe. Uh, in, in the way it's used here, it's, it's a good old it's, it's fullness of time. It's the right time. And notice it's a ripe old age satisfied with life. Um, Verse 9 gives us a brief insight to the sons Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, these sons had no lost love between them. They didn't like each other. And Ishmael's been pushed out. Ishmael's going to live in defiance of his relatives, in defiance of his people. So Ishmael's a tough character, but they come together to bury their dad. It's as true then as it, was, as it is now that families, dysfunctional, broken families are reunited at times of burial. They're reunited at times of wedding sometimes, reunited at times of birth sometimes. The, the passages of life and death tend to bring families together. But far more than that, we can't read a whole lot into that line other than that word went out. They let Ishmael know Abraham's dead and he comes back to bury his father with his brother. What is important about this reunion is that this sets up the stage for the Jacob and Esau account. Nothing in the Bible is happenstance or, oh, by the way, or clever. The scripture is a woven fabric that's three-dimensional and spiritual. The scripture is going to outlive us. It's gonna, we'll never study it to completion. When we step from earth's threshold into heavens, we'll begin to understand what we didn't understand. But the scripture is living and active. And this story sets up the tension between these two brothers, the illegitimate brother with the true promised seed. When you come to Jacob and Esau, the heel grabber, the slippery Jacob, Esau, the burly one, the firstborn, the birthright, who sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. If I remember my Hebrew correctly, it's a great line. He says to, to Jacob, give me some of that red stuff there. He's hungry. He's not, he's not been successful hunting. Give me some of that red stuff you got cooking there. I'm hungry. Will you give me your birthright? In a moment of impulsive foolishness and despising his inheritance, he gives his brother his birthright for a bowl of stew. But that was the human play. What's going on vertically is God said that the older would serve the younger. He's going to flip the birth order. No, you don't do that. No, this is God's design, not man's. So Isaac and Ishmael set the stage. The, the two, Jacob and Esau, play out the story because they both come from the lineage and the fight continues and the story becomes more about Jacob than Esau. But then Jesus puts the icing on the cake when he tells the story of the prodigal. 
Because Jesus in this story of the prodigal, which could be studied for the rest of your life, sets up the construct of the son who goes and lives licentiously, the real sinner. And he wastes his inheritance. First he asks his inheritance of his father, which is saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what I got coming. Why the father capitulates is a story in itself. Then he comes to his senses when he's feeding pigs. It couldn't be a more insulting illustration to a Jew. It's so low he's feeding unclean animal animals. All the while, the prodigal son has always done the right thing. He's home. He's never disobeyed. His father always been the one to do everything. Check the box. In some argument, he's a more egregious sinner than the son who went out because the son who went out repents and comes back. I'll be a slave. I'll be a, I'll, I'll be a ranch hand, Dad. Just let me be a worker on your farm, on your field. I don't even need to live as a son anymore. I'll just be a, a worker. I get a better life that way than I have now. And he welcomes him and opens his arm, throws him a party, ring on his finger, robe, images to Joseph. All that he does to bless him brings him back in the family. Your son, the older brother, the smug legalistic. So what do you have there? You have the licentious sinner and the legalistic sinner. What's the difference? Only one repents. What's the similar point? The father loves them. The father loves the one that went crazy, we would say. The father loves the one who's stuck in legalism and doesn't get it. And so these stories aren't just clever narratives. It's the story, we, we use that word, we overuse that word story in this culture here. But the story is about redemption, that we're sinners. We can look the part, check the box, and be, quote, righteous, or we can live like, you know what, and come back, and the father still loves us. And the only way to the father is through one son. And that image comes back in a hundred ways. And the image we have, of course, now is the image of Isaac, the promised son, the promised seed. Well, the reunion is, is just interesting to look at. Another piece I want you to see is the cave of Machpelah. The cave is mentioned here in verse 9, sort of, oh, by the way, it's a very important piece of transaction. In fact, the, the author reviews that here at some length. And so, again, if the author of Scripture puts time into this, we should look at it a little bit. The, the field came from of Ephron, the area, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, where Abraham had purchased from the sons of Heth, where Abraham buried his wife Sarah. The, the importance of the cave of Machpelah is manifold. Number one, uh, you remember the story, perhaps, that uh, he's going to give him this piece of land, and Abraham says, no, I'm going to pay you for it. Um, most of us in this room have bought at least one home in our lives. Some of you more than once. Some of you have property you buy. The first time you buy a house, it's a daunting thing when you sign all those pieces of paper, right? You, I remember the first home we bought back in 1980, whatever it was, four or five. And we signed papers for like an hour. And, and I, you know, it's, I'm scared to death. It's more money we ever spent on anything in our life. We're going to barely be able to pay the mortgage on this crazy thing. We just scraped together just enough to get a down payment to buy the house. Uh, the interest rate was a mere 11.7%, and that was a deal in those days. They were 15 on the street. And uh, so we're just, and I got, I'm making $22,000 a year. That was my income, and we're buying this little house. Scared the bejeebers out of me. And I, I realized every piece of paper, I'd say, what is this about? And the realtor would just sort of blather something. And I realized all these pieces of paper say the same thing. 
If I don't pay my mortgage, they'll take my house away. If I don't pay my mortgage, they'll take my house away. If I don't pay my mortgage, they'll take my house away. If I don't, and they, they also say this, if I pay my mortgage, I get to keep my house. If I pay, that's what they say. That's what they all say. Right? Reduction theology here on mortgages. That's what they all say. You pay, you keep, you don't, they can take it away. That's what you're signing. Why is that important? Because it is the largest financial thing most Americans will ever engage in, and it is your home. Now keep that emotion and thought together. When Abraham secures the cave of Machpelah, what's in the background? God has given him the land. God gave it to Abraham. Abraham's not going to just acquire a piece of, oh, you can have the land. No, I want a property. I want a deed. I want a title. I want a mortgage that says this is my cave, my field. Why is that important? As you continue in the storyline, Jacob is going to ask Joseph to make a swear, an oath promise. Listen to Genesis 47, 30. When I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt. Remember the the backdrop of the story, just a little review. Uh, there, There was a famine in the land. And so the brothers go down to Egypt, and of course that's when they find out that Joseph is sold into slavery, he's actually become the second most powerful man in Egypt. Remember the story? He saved Egypt, and he's saving the lineage of Abraham. So as the story completes the circle in Genesis, in Genesis 47, 30, he says, uh, swear to me, uh, you will bury me in their burial place. The text doesn't precisely say the cave of Machpelah, but that's what he's referring to. That's where Abraham, that's where Sarah, that's where Isaac, that's where Jacob, that's where the families were. Think of it like a family plot. In the land. Because God gave them the land. Now, Joseph has spent the largest part of his life in Egypt. First in captivity and then working with the Pharaoh. And as Joseph dies in chapter 50, and he tells his brothers to swear an oath, that you will take me, take my bones back to the land. He didn't precisely say the cave of Machpelah, but I'm going to tell you a 90% guesstimate on my part is that's what they had in mind. Because being gathered to the fathers is an idiom of going to not a burial plot. I don't care where I'm buried. I want to be gathered to my fathers who are resurrected with God in heaven. I want to be buried in the land that promised that God promised to Abraham. And this is why the land is so important. Now, some church traditions and denominations don't care about Israel, and I understand that. But from a biblical perspective, strictly, the land is important because God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him a piece of land that would have certain borders and parameters. And as far as I can read in Deuteronomy 30 and going forward, that promise has never been revoked because God keeps his promises. Now, even if you saw the news this morning, the land of Israel will always be a tumultuous land. It'll, be, it'll always have skirmishes and wars and outbreaks and whatever. It hangs on. It's the size of Connecticut, surrounded by massive countries on three sides and the Mediterranean Sea on the other. It's got nowhere to go. And they hang on by their little tiny fingernails. Is that land of the Jew the land of the Jew? That's a long answer. Does God have a plan for that piece of dirt? I will tell you absolutely. Because he made a promise to Abraham that has not been abrogated. It wasn't a bilateral covenant. It wasn't an if-then. You're going to be a blessing. You're going to have this land. So when Wayland Smith did a beautiful job with our elevation here, taking off all the buildings, giving us a pretty good abstract but accurate idea of what it would be like, 
when he takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him on that altar, that becomes a purchase point. In 1 Chronicles 21, David buys a threshing floor from a man named Ornan. Same story happens there that happened with Abraham acquiring the land from the sons of Zophar. Because he says, no, I'll give it to you. In fact, Ornan's a generous guy. Everything I have is yours, if I remember the text correctly. It's all, you can have it all. And David says, no, I will pay you the full price. Because that's where the temple complex is going to be. Why is it important The Scripture records the cave of Machpelah? Because that gathering was to the family of God, the, the patriarchs of God, their spouses, their children. This was the promise God made to a chosen people that did not deserve it. And they honored God by saying, I want to be buried back in the land God promised me. I want to be buried there. And when David negotiates this piece of property that the temple complex is going to be built on, it's the same thing. Let it not be debated. This was God's land given to the Jew. Doesn't matter who occupies it today, in history, or even in the future. The spiritual seed of Israel owns that land. God gave it to it. And this is the mortgage. This is the deed, because God said this was their land, and that's why it's important, and that's why the author just briefly mentions, bury me in the cave of Machpelah, bury me in the land of my fathers. Well, the great patriarch is going to die. Um, All men die. Remember the imagery of death in the storyline? We have a dead womb, we have a man well past bearing children, a dead womb, and a, a man unable to procreate and God opens the womb of Sarah and so a dead womb and a dead husband produce a live child Isaac and Isaac gets married to Rebecca and some of you know the story as well 20 years of infertility 20 years of no children how are we going to have innumerable descendants when I can't have any kids Lord and Rebecca, of course, pleads with him. It's a rich, precious story. And Jacob is going to intercede. Isaac's going to intercede uh, for God to, to open her womb. And, of course, she bears a child. But these stories, what do they tell us? Do you, th- do you think Isaac, during 20 years of, of uh, wanting to have children, and, and Rebecca, brokenhearted, wanted to have children, do, do you think during those 20 years they ever thought about Sarah? Of course they did. In fact, he makes some of the same sin errors his father does in his storyline. And so the story continues, the theology continues. At the high level, what does it tell us? God makes promises to us. God ensures us of things. It does not work out the way we view it in the horizontal experiential realm. And that's the hardest part for the American Christian, I I submit. If then, if then... If then, no. God's made a promise. There's no if then. He's just told you it's going to happen this way. It's going to end this way. It might be hard. In fact, I'm going to tell you some bad news. It's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. You're going to sin. You're a broken creature in a broken, fallen world. Sometimes it's our own fault. Sometimes it's the fault of the context. Sometimes we don't know why it happens. But it just happens because we're in a broken system. But the promise is still intact. He still loves you. He still forgives you. You can still count on him, no matter what your experience tells you or what my experience tries to tell me. How we live by faith or by flesh is the end, is the question. When the stuff comes, how we live, 
By flesh, she's my sister. By flesh, lying, or by faith. In God's great kindness, he carries us through even when we live by flesh, but he wants us to live by faith. We often speak of giving our lives away. It's a great phrase. Sometimes when you choose phrases like that, they can become a little bit um, routine and sort of fall into the noise in the background. Yeah, I give my life away. Um, I will make the observation, and I can be wrong. Um, You may disagree with me. Western Christianity has become all about me. My actualization, how I feel, my marriage, my children, my family, my wife, my husband, my job, my career, my passions, my, 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 my. I think there is some good in that, but I think there's a lot of danger in that. Uh, The Western Christian mind has got to extrapolate itself out of a Western culture. It's no different than Babylon. And we've got to extrapolate our thinking out of that to say, no, I'm here to serve Christ, not merely my own wants and needs. Now, does that mean you can't enjoy the stuff of life? No. Does that mean you can't enjoy prosperity? No. Does that mean you can't get a better job, build a better company? No, it doesn't mean that. But the attitude of the average believer, I would submit, and you may be different. I'm just throwing it out there for you to process. You can disagree with me. I'm not inerrant. Only one inerrant. Uh, is about myself. What I want. My dreams. And we were with some friends that are not talking about bucket lists. And, you know, it's fun to talk about a bucket list. And I had made some comment to Cindy about something. And she said, you know, we should do that. That's not even hard to do. And I said, you know, that wasn't even the point. It was just, and then I got to thinking, Lord, is this a spiritual decision to do this? And I'm not saying I'm the example here. I'm just asking the question. My life is not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. And part of the American Western notion of bigger, better, newer, more, if we hold that open-handedly, go for it, baby, go for it. It's not yours anyway, right? But I suspect more of us wrestle with the me, my, I than the you, yours, and others. Paul told us to consider others more important than ourselves. How well do we do on that one? husbands how do you do that with your you consider your wife more important than yourself wife you consider your husband more important than yourself huh I mean for honest come on now when we have little children boy we consider them more important than ourselves until they become teenagers and then God just kind of laughs Says, yeah you'll get over it wait till they're 25 or 30 it'll all be fine we build these constructs that life's going to work a certain way Give your life away? Kidner writes, the death of Abraham is giving, excuse me, the death of Abraham is given in a setting in the catalog of families that sprang from him. Such is the onward thrust of Genesis. Among these, true to pattern, those who were to play little part in the history of salvation make their bow first to leave the chief actors in succession. It's a little bit eloquent, but what he's saying is that Isaac's going to play a small role. Jacob's going to play a big role. Joseph's going to play a big role. And what I like about Kidner's observation is, um, I have a role. You have a role. We're not recorded in Scripture. And you know what I would say to that? Thank God your life and mine are illustrations for all to read. 
But we're all used. We're all used. And the choice of flesh or the choice of faith. In your sphere of influence with your family, your friends, your associates, where you do life, where you traffic, the things you, the, the, you know, the repeat patterns that we have, where we go, we're vacation, the same place again and again. You have a pattern. And that's your sphere of influence. What are you doing with it? You living by faith or living by flesh? As we end, I want you to turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Psalter, written by the same author, Moses, who compiled the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Old Testament, of which Genesis is what we've been studying. We don't know precisely when Moses wrote this psalm. It is a remarkable text. I am going to guess that he's a little older by the tone of the psalm. We don't know if this was before or after God told him he wouldn't inhabit the land. We'll we'll not know that this side of the grave. But there are three verses I want to look at, verse 12, verse 14, verse 17. Psalm 90, verse 12, verse 14, verse 17, briefly. With this story of burying Abraham in mind. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In the the margin of my Bible, I've paraphrased that, gain God's perspective on my life. Gain God's perspective on my life. Teach us to number our days. Some of you have heard the story about the, the, the man who had a big barrel of marbles. He figured out what his actuaries, how many days he'd live, and he filled up this giant jar with marbles that represented, you know, 50,000 days, whatever it was. And every day he went to work, he took one, put it in his pocket, and when he left work, he threw it away. Now, that's like watching your children grow, right? I mean, it takes a long time to see any movement. It's just a good image, a picture of teaching us to number our days. Um, I'm not maudlin. Uh, I don't want to be maudlin. But you and I have a number of days. And the psalmist here, Moses, is saying, teach us to realize I only got so much time. Now, when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I didn't think about this very much. I did some of my, I went to, I went to midlife in my 30s. I was always sort of an old soul, I guess. In my 30s, I went through midlife huge. And then when I hit 40, everything was fine again. And I was re- rearing to go. 50 didn't bother me at all. 58 now, 60 staring me down. 60 feels different. It just feels different. I don't know why. Um, and those of you over 60 are laughing at me. I know. Give me a little slack. Um, it's where I am. But uh, your perspective changes. Doesn't it? And it's not that your perspective is wrong in your 20s and 30s. It's just you learn. And when I read this verse, I go, wow, there's a Cormac McCarthy line I'm going to mess up. But there's more water going out than coming in. Not a lot of time. What am I doing with my time? And for me, it's narrowing my focus. It's narrowing my interests. It's narrowing my patterns. It's narrowing where, where I spend. When I spend time with people, it, it's, it's precise now. It's not just, oh, sure, I'll hang out with anybody. It's, it's a little more narrow and purposeful now than it used to be. I say no a lot more. But I say yes, hopefully, to the right kinds of things. And that's hard, but only got so many days. Teaches the number of days. But don't miss the next part, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. God, you've given me, let's just say, 100,000 days as a nice round number. 
How am I using them for you? You gave them to me. I don't own my life. You did. How am I living? Look down at verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. I've taught you about loving kindness, and I'll teach you again and again and again and again and again. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promise. CPCP, chosen people and covenant promise. God loves to be loyal to his people and to his promise, to those he chose and to the covenant promises he made. God's character is not love, emotion, the way we think of love, loving kindness. If you have ESV, it's steadfast love every time. If you have NIV, you're on your own. Uh, Loving kindness is the most important word in our Old Testament. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promise. The psalmist, Moses here, is saying, satisfy us in the morning. Stop for just a second. Why is it that when we wake up in the morning, it's a new day? Where does that come from in our nomenclature? How many of you had a, a, you know, this is like AA. How many of you had a bad night last night? Like Saturday just wasn't a good day. Just we're high, we're high, we're high. And you woke up this morning, was it a little better? Why? I don't understand all I know. And if you have really bad days, it sometimes takes several mornings. And then one morning you're like, oh, hey, maybe it's not as heavy as it was. You, you lose a friend, you bury a loved one, you're diagnosed with cancer, your mother's diagnosed with cancer. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, it's shock and trauma and the world stops in a few days, turn into weeks, turn into months. And then one day you wake up and it's a new day. I don't understand all I know. It's almost felt the same way. He goes, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Not my plan for my life, with your loving kindness. That you chose me and you've made promises to me. Chosen people, covenant promise. Your chesed love. Thank you. When I wake up in the morning, remind me, you chose me. I didn't deserve this. I deserved hell. You chose me and you made promises to me. Satisfy me with that in the morning. Look, continue so that I may sing for joy and be glad. Facing the future, I said, can you smile at the future? Or are you afraid? Do you live in fear? Or do you live by faith? And lastly, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. In the margin of my Bible, I have let my life have meaning. Now, Moses' life, uh, we forget this story, but he spends a long time in the wilderness wandering, and everybody who's 20 years or older dies in the wilderness. If there were 1.2 million Israelites that crossed the Red Sea, not this little puddle that is normally depicted on movies, 1.2 million people crossed the Red Sea. You can do the math. Let's just say for round numbers, there were 700 burials every day in Israel, in, in the wilderness. What is Moses doing for those years? One long funeral procession. And then when he disobeys God and strikes the rock to speak to it, he, he's, not, he's prevented from going into the land across the Jordan he was promised to see. He was told he could see. And he dies on this side of it. So Moses' life in the 40-year blocks, you know that if you've read the Bible, I mean, the last part is it's miserable. It's miserable what he does with the stubborn, obstinate people in the wilderness, one long funeral procession. Now, I don't know when he wrote this, but it intrigues me if it was while this was going on. And maybe he's sitting in a Bedouin-like configuration of poles and 
some tent goat fabric skins that are for shade in the Judean wilderness. And he's watching these family units out there among the sea of people burying their loved ones as they move when the cloud moves. What an experience that would have been at times. There's no DVD to escape to, no book to escape to, no movie theater, no restaurant to go check out tomorrow night. Living in the sand and marauding in the wilderness for all those years, watching people bury their parents. And then coming afresh with a bunch of 20, 19-year-olds that grew up in that context. I don't know if that's when he wrote it, but boy, that makes that last verse pop out to me. Give him up the work of my... Does my life mean anything? Now, when Abraham's buried, he says he's at a good old age and he was satisfied with life. Uh, my nephew, uh, cousin recently posted some pictures from a couple years back of my dad and his two older brothers. There were three Easley boys, John, Denny, and my dad, Joseph. And um, I went up to see him for my dad's 50th uh, high school reunion. I surprised him. We were living in Virginia at the time, and Cindy had taken the family to Texas. And I said, I'm going to go surprise my dad. So I drove up to Ford City, Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes north of Pittsburgh, to see my dad and surprise him. And uh, we have a few pictures of that time. And I call it my grumpy old men weekend. Uh, John's the oldest. Denny was the middle one who never married, and dad was the youngest. Uh, John had six kids. Dad, uh, Denny, of course, none, and my dad had three. And um, so I'm a man of many words. I probably said 25 words the two and a half days I was there. I just asked a question and watched them argue. It was hysterical. <laughs> it was delightful. I'd say, hey, tell me, Dad always told me the story about such and such. Tell me, and oh, that ain't the way it happened, Joe. And they'd argue among the three of them. It was just delightful. And uh, none of them could agree on anything. It was hysterical. They were so much alike their tics, their mannerisms, the way they curl their nose with their bifocals. I mean, they were so much alike, it was frightening, but they did this disagree on everything. My dad was the only one with a sense of humor. And they would argue about it, and he would chortle his Joe Easley laugh. Oh, he had this great laugh. He'd chortle his old laugh. And I sat there and watched this, and I, it was delightful. It really was delightful watching these three grumpy old men. Um, they died within 18 months of each other. In my father's obituary, we had information that we never knew before, or at least I never knew before. Um, my oldest uncle was a genealogy guy back with file cabinets before they had technology. He would drive around studying the Easley lineage. But all that to say, um, when, I went to see, when I went to see them, there's a, a church up there in Fort City. It's a Catholic church now. It's abandoned. It's just kind of a relic on a, on a grave site. And there are all these Easley uh, headstones. That's where I hail from, my, my dad's side. And going to see that little knoll and my dad's call back to Fort City, which is an impoverished little town, um, it sort of awakened some things in me. In the obit, it says that it names five other children of memory serves that I never knew were born to my grandparents. I don't know if they die, I don't think in the 20s they... Stillborns weren't documented like they are now. Stillborns were buried on the farm. So I don't know if they were children or they were killed in an accident or what. They died of, you know, an infection. Who knows? We have no data on that. And now they're dead. We don't know. We have no way of knowing. 
But it struck me all the years, my dad died at 88, 88, 91, 93 were the ages, 18 months of each other, and there's six from that first family, and now we're going through pictures going, why do I bring this up? How am I going to die? And what are my kids and grandkids going to say about whatever they're going to call me? Teach us the number of our days. Satisfy us with your chesed in the morning. To live for joy and gladness. See, I don't want to die a grumpy old man. I want to die a man full of faith. I want to die a man satisfied with life. If I was to die today, I can honestly tell you, I would die a man. Sure, a lot of things that are disappointing and dissatisfied with life. But I'm going to tell you, I'm a satisfied man. I'm not fearing the future. I don't like what I see in the news. I don't like what I see in the media. I'm not afraid. And I want you to be afraid. You can live by faith. You can live by fear. I want to, I want to be buried like Abraham. A ripe old age. I don't know what that means. But I think it's better than dying a bitter old man or a selfish old man or a crotchety old woman or a difficult old woman. You go, to a, you go to assisted living and you go visit people. They're sweet or they're bitter. There's very little gray. Very little gray. And I'm not saying medically we might not be in control of all that. But boy, I pray, Lord, if, if the mind goes... Let me be a pleasant, vacant guy. Because <laughs> I don't want to be a crotchety old person. I don't want it to be depressing. I want it to be encouraging. Number your days. Give your life away. It's not about me. It's about the God who saved you. If you don't know Christ... He offers you a free gift called salvation. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone, not their works, not their family, not their religion, Christ and Christ alone are promised, God's promises, eternal life with him. You're forgiven of your sin. You're made a new creation. From the dead womb of Sarah to the deadness of our hearts, God is in the business of resurrecting people who are dead. You and I can do nothing to earn our salvation. We can do nothing to gain it, but we must trust and believe and accept that he offers it. We believe in him. We put our faith in him. We trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's believing in Christ. He lived, he died, he was buried. He came back from the dead. Any and all who trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised eternal life forgiveness of sins, and relationship with him. And then it's a process of what? God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. And that's how we do this crazy thing called life. In a broken system with broken people who are all sinners, who all deserved hell, but now have been given heaven. That's how you die. Satisfied, with joy, and full of life. As far as I know, I don't think there's any other way. Come tonight and watch the baptisms. Watch men and women and young people say that they've trusted Christ and see their stories. God bless you. Have a great week.